Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. If you've been here the last few weeks, you know we've been in this series on fire pit conversations, but it occurred to me some of you may be relatively new and the whole idea just may seem a bit foreign or you don't understand it. So I thought I'd take a second. We've been throughout this series. We've had groups of people, upwards of 10, sometimes more, gathering around indoor and outdoor fireplaces or if there are neither than a candle all throughout uh, the city in different homes, having conversations about significant subjects related to politics, related to the tension around politics, related to uh, raising uh, children in this world, to grandparenting, to all kinds of different subjects. And as you know, we've done this now for several weeks. We've had multiple groups that have uh, met. We have many others that will be meeting this week. We won't have sign-ups anymore because we're coming to the end of the series. But I wanted to set that a little bit in case some of you are unfamiliar with what we've been doing. It also occurs to me, as it does often, uh, it did again today, that we gather together, you look around, there's a fair fairly sizable crowd that gathers. And what happens sometimes in a crowd is that individuals blend in and become part of the crowd. And I was struck again today while we were worshiping God that what comes through these doors every every time we gather are a whole bunch of stories, and each one of us has one. And we bring our story into this room, and we link it up with other people who have their own story, and together we seek to find God in the midst of it. And so I'd like to pray as we begin, and then we'll dive into our scripture reading. Lord Jesus, we are grateful to you for uh, the story that you have crafted in our lives, and recognizing today that there are folks here whose story perhaps right now is turning in a direction they do not want. Others are discovering life and hope and joy, and we simply come and bring who we are and what we are at this moment to you with an openness to your spirit that even today, through whatever means, you might speak to us, you might have your way in us, you might be at work in us, forming and transforming, and most especially giving us a vision of who you are, that we might see you and experience you and in the real things of this life, come to understand who you are and how we can follow you. And so we commit our time uh, in your word to you, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for our scripture? I'm going to be reading from Proverbs chapter 26, just three verses, 20 through 22. Throughout this series, we've jumped in and out of the Proverbs because of their wisdom related to various relational issues, which is our topic in this series. So Proverbs chapter 26, verses 20 through 22. Without wood, a fire goes out. Without a gossip, a quarrel dies down. As charcoal to embers and as wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome person for kindling strife. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the inmost parts. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I think a rather fitting passage in light of our fire pit series, one of the reasons why I chose it. Julie and I participated in a fire pit conversation this past week, and the topic was intentional intergenerational relationships, old, young, 
and everything in between sharing around a fire and it was a unique and extremely powerful evening so get this picture in your mind last wednesday night sitting around an outdoor fire were a six-year-old an eight-year-old two teenagers two people in their early 20s one in their later 20s two in their 30s two in their 40s four in their 50s a dog in her 60s and a person in their 80s all gathered around this fire about 16 people listening sharing encouraging and learning from each other the dog didn't say much but it was spiritually formative for the dog nonetheless and among the many amazing things experienced last wednesday night was the realization obviously in varying degrees that jesus connects people across the spectrum of age gender race status economics and political preference walls of separation crumble to the ground in and through his powerful reconciling presence and so it's almost as though the greater the difference between us in this case the spectrum of seven different decades the more compelling our communal witness will be especially in a divided and fractured world like the one we live in see reconciliation is a powerful thing to experience and it's a powerful thing to see to watch happen it's not just about sworn enemies becoming friends and this is important for what we're talking about today reconciliation is not just about sworn enemies who become friends reconciliation is about people who are separated by age or by race or by whatever coming together the wall between them falling down and so i want to watch i want us to watch a video one of my daughters sent it to me actually while i was working uh on this message this thing popped up i usually ignore this kind of stuff but i looked at it and i thought it fit because it's a picture of a wall coming down and it's a picture of reconciliation so let's watch the video story proves that powerful friendships can form even for people who seem to have nothing in common at all. Here's a look at how an 82-year-old widower was touched by an innocent question in the canned food aisle of a grocery store when he needed it the most. Not long ago, in a cemetery outside Augusta, Georgia, a loving couple was buried. The wife buried below this white bouquet. The husband buried above in a mound of grief. Took me totally by surprise. 82-year-old Dan Peterson says after Mary died, he fell into a deep depression. Spent days just staring out at the squirrels. What were you living for? I was trying to figure that out, frankly. You had no purpose? No. Were you just waiting to die? Yeah. For six months, it was just that bad. And then one day you go to a grocery store. <laughs> it all changed inside this Publix. Dan was nearing the end of the canned vegetable aisle. He hates grocery shopping, and by all accounts, the expression on his face confirmed his aggravation. But that's when this unapproachable man was approached by a four-year-old girl named Nora Wood. 
In the security footage, you can see Nora randomly reaching out to him. Her mom, Tara, says it was quite embarrassing. She stood up and said, Hi, old person, it's my birthday today. Old person? Old person. Hi, old person. She says this to this cranky old man? Yeah. And then had the audacity to demand a hug. I said, a hug? I said, absolutely. <laughs> Nora got her hug and then asked her mom to take a picture of her with her new friend. She zeroed in on him like a missile. And she didn't want anything from him. She just wanted to make him feel loved and give him a hug. And his little lip quivered and he was teared up and it was just sweet. And I said, you don't know. This is the first time for quite a while that I've been as happy. That all happened a couple months ago. And his grin has only gotten wider since. Hi, sweetheart. Come in. Come in. Today, Nora visits at least once a week. So how's my sweetie, huh? And every time, it's the grocery store all over again. I knew I was going to get a hook. <laughs> oh, it's unbelievable. Totally unbelievable. It's a bridge. It's a bridge. Oh, okay. Dan does have grandkids of his own, but they're all grown and gone. And Nora does have grandparents. But her mom says this is a completely different kind of bond that almost defies explanation. She fell asleep holding a picture of them. I, what? <laughs> to Dan, it's equally miraculous, but far less mysterious. He believes Nora is, quite literally, an angel. She opened me to a love that I didn't know existed. Dan, let me ask you. When your wife died, you felt like you didn't have any purpose anymore. Do you feel like you have a purpose now? Of course. Nora, watching her grow up, I know I made room in my heart for a lot more. You've heard this word in here many times, this word shalom. And sometimes you may wonder, what does that actually look like? Well, I would suggest to you that a piece of what shalom looks like is what you just watched. The goodness of God, the restoration of God, the healing of God, breaking forth in the midst of ordinary human life. And this is important. And it is the shyness of God being perfectly content to go uncredited for his good work. So it happens, and it breaks out, but his shyness allows him to say, you don't need to credit me. Jesus is a reconciler. He reduces walls of separation wherever they may be, and he brings them to rubble if we let him. And in week five here of our Fire Pit Conversation series, we're talking about conflict in relationships and the ways we're shaped by it, and the ways we are deformed by it, and the ways we can be transformed by it. And in a church like ours, where difference is a high value, we are trying to be an intentional community of different ages, races, statuses, stati, I'm not sure what the word is, and genders, living together in submission to Jesus. We want to be a community of people who see the world differently, who feel the world differently, and who have different social and political convictions all together 
under the reign of Jesus. And where this kind of difference is of value, conflict, it seems to me, is inevitable. When a group of people sit around a fire and the conversation is politics in a fractured world, disagreement and potentially conflict are likely on the individual level from one person to the next. Obviously, when two sinful and naturally selfish people have a relationship, whether it's a friendship, a marriage, or whatever, conflict will eventually happen. And in these tense times in which we now live, if we as the church will train ourselves to be attentive to the presence of Jesus in these great social discussions or just in individual happenings and dealings with others, conflict can be redeemed and we can provide an alternative way to handling conflict here in a fractured world. So let's talk about the fact that conflict handled well is actually a really good thing. For many reasons, I tend to be a bit of a conflict seeker. Um, In Proverbs speak, I tend to be one who kindles strife, I would say, a bit too much, and that's not a good thing. Some of you, on the other side, are conflict avoiders, and that's not a good thing. But conflict handled well is a good thing. Think of a relationship where there is underlying tension, however great or small it may be, or there's a persistent thread of conflict. And I simply want to say the Spirit wants to do a work in us through that situation. He wants to form us in and through these kinds of relational challenges. And this says nothing about the outcomes of these conflicts, whether they are resolved in a neat way or not. Because our formation in conflict has nothing to do with winning or losing or even resolving the conflict. Our formation in conflict has to do with being attentive to the presence of Jesus in the midst of the conflict. What does he want to do in this situation? What is he saying to me in this situation? Where is he leading me? Where is he leading us? Conflict is not only inevitable, it is necessary. It is a sign of relational life. It is a sign the people are actually engaged with each other. They care. It's a sign of hope for the relationship's future. There's a shared belief and desire for the relationship to grow and become something, and together we want that. So we enter into the conflict instead of pretending it doesn't exist. We enter into the conflict instead of hoping it somehow magically goes away. When conflict is handled well, it fosters health and intimacy. We won't get if we avoid the conflict. When it is avoided or when it is handled poorly, the distance increases and the wall gets higher. Let's talk about doing conflict with gentleness, submission, and respect. This perhaps is... Uh, the most significant thing we're going to talk about today. And those three words are, are all important words. Doing conflict with gentleness, submission, and respect. We demonstrate the reality of Jesus in us and with us by how we do conflict and how we handle our differences with each other and with others in the world. But we also ratify the suspicions of a culture that is skeptical of the church by how we do conflict and how we handle our differences. The way we do conflict is really then the central issue. And if I were not a Christian, 
And I saw how Christians often handle conflict and disagreement and how they respond when they disagree uh, with anger and with disrespect and with this relentless drive to prove their point and this relentless drive to win. If I were not a follower of Christ and I watched or saw or read about Christians handling conflict in this way, I would not be persuaded even a little to, to pursue or explore the Christian faith. And I don't have to tell you how important this is given the current state of affairs in our nation. And I don't have to tell you how important this is in a culture where a primary forum of conflict is the unrelational setting of social media, where people feel the freedom to say far more than they ever would and say it far more intensely than they ever would than if they were face to face with someone with whom they disagree. See, it is heartbreaking and discouraging when Christians who should be leading experts and practitioners in humility and gentleness and submission and respect instead manifest arrogance through dehumanization fueled by the myth of righteous anger. So Proverbs 15 and verse 1 is a verse we've looked at a couple weeks ago. I want to read it again. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And then this one from Proverbs 16 and verse 32. Better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. Credibly wise for these times. Our scripture reading in Proverbs 26:20: without wood, a fire goes out. See, gentleness is a character quality most of us will manifest when we know we are in the presence of a vulnerable other, an easily harmed other. When we're in the presence of one who is clearly easily harmed, most of us will find gentleness. We have a 12-pound sloth who lives in our house. I mean dog who lives in our house. Her name is Charlotte. And it's strange to me, but her presence in our home has evoked gentleness in me. Because her vulnerability is obvious. Put it this way, her delicate exterior accurately depicts the fragility of her interior. You see, the truth is, we humans do a better job of lying. And so our exterior does not accurately depict the fragility of our interior, and as a result, we stomp on the other and think justified in doing so. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus is talking about something else, but he says, kind of throws it in there, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. See, gentleness gets a bad rap as convictionless weakness. And I suspect some of you hold this position. Gentleness seems like the absence of truth. Gentleness seems like the absence of conviction. But really, gentleness has to do with power minus the harshness. Strength without the anger. When a group of Ochilians gathers around a fire pit to discuss politics in a fractured world, there will be and should be differing opinions. There will be and might be conflict. There will be 
and should be passionate engagement. But if it is going to actually be Christian and actually be an alternative way to what happens in our culture every day and actually reflect the presence and power of Jesus, then there will be and should be gentleness, submission, and respect. A deep concern about the vulnerability of the other. Gentleness so as not to crush. Mutual submission where we listen and learn from the other and caution to not damage the soul of the other through the misuse of power or the implementation of passive or aggressive anger. We remember that the other person, no matter how different they may be from us, is made in God's image, and their differing opinion does not eradicate his image in them. And a wonderful book on all of this, one we might even read together down the road as a church, is by a guy named Richard Mao, who is a professor at Fuller, and he spent nearly four decades as an evangelical Christian trying to help the church engage in cultural conversations about social issues in a redemptive way. And this is on the screen. It's worth following. He writes, One of the real problems in modern life is that the people who are good at being civil often lack strong convictions, and people who have strong convictions often lack civility. We need to find a way of combining a civil outlook with a passionate intensity about our convictions. The real challenge is to come up with a convicted civility. Great phrase. Thirdly, let's talk about the fact that conversations have a way of diffusing conflicts so they don't become permanent walls of separation. Proverbs 26, starting in verse 20. Without wood, a fire goes out. Without a gossip, a quarrel dies down. As charcoal to embers and as wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome person for kindling strife. The destructive power, in other words, of talking to another but not talking to the one with whom we have the disagreement. The division caused by the one who stirs up conflict but doesn't value the relationship so as to enter into the messy hard work of reconciliation. You know, for some of us, a lot of conflict happens in our heads. And left to ourselves, our imaginations will run wild with these conflicts. And we will pencil out a scenario in our minds of what is happening between us and the other person. And the mind is so powerful, we start believing our scenario is true. And we respond as if it is true and as if it actually has happened precisely as our script suggests. And it is really easy to have ongoing conflicts in our heads against the absolute worst rendition of the other person with whom we disagree. It's like we create this other and then stand back from the other we've created and we declare with an echo of Genesis 1, and I saw the person I had made in my mind and they were very bad. And so these imaginary conflicts are not only easy to have, they are really easy to win. Over the years, I have accumulated a record of 4,112 wins and zero losses. In the arguments I have had with the Julie I have created in my head. 
Because regarding this imaginary Julie who lives in my mind, her arguments are weak, her perspectives are shallow, her logic is non-existence, her selfishness is legendary, and her lack of understanding is Olympian, and my record against her is perfect. I win every time. But real conversations with the real Julie, who actually exists when done well, with gentleness and submission and respect, diffuse the conflict before it mushrooms, deepen our understanding of each other, dispel the imaginary make-believe world in my head, demolish my delusions, and lo and behold, cultivate intimacy between us. But as you may know, this is incredibly hard work. Just easier to avoid it or pretend it doesn't exist. This is incredibly hard work because it takes time. It takes practice. And if we are not teachable, if we're set in our way, if we're not willing, if we're not hungry to do conflict differently, if the other in our mind typically generates in us an eye roll, ugh, gosh, if only they'd grow up, something like that, then don't even bother. Because growth in conflict is not a three easy steps to success kind of issue. Now, some people are ready to jump into the conversation right away at first sign of trouble. Others need time to process and think through their perspectives and feelings. But eventually, conversation, talking about it, if done with gentleness, submission, and respect, will keep the wall from getting higher. A couple of weeks ago, Julie and I had one of those weeks where we kept missing each other. She was on one track. I was on a different track. We couldn't sync up for whatever reason. And we had two tough conversations about this during the week, trying to uh, get reconnected. And both conversations hovered on the precipice of anger, dismissiveness, and avoidance. And we fell over the precipice. A few times. Well, I did, at least. But we stayed at it. And we discovered yet again the importance of staying at it. And eventually, talking about the issues and all sorts of good things came from it. Lastly, Jesus is a reconciler. It's impossible to step into this topic on a day we're celebrating communion and not simply declare it again. Jesus is a reconciler. I'm reminded of this as we prepare for the table. He took the initiative in the insurmountable conflict we had with God. The distance between us was great. The fracture was extreme, but Jesus is a reconciler. And through his life, death, and resurrection, he made a way for us to be reconciled to God. Remember, his best friends abandoned him when he was in his darkest hour, but he reconciled them. He forgave and restored and offered them the indescribable gift of being able to start fresh. Repeatedly in his life, he stood with those who had been banished to the other side of a wall. A despicable sinner, a diseased leper, a despised tax collector, a lifelong paralytic, a racial outcast, a child. He sledgehammered the walls of ageism, sexism, racism, materialism, healthism, wealthism, imperialism, and judgmentalism. He stood in the midst of heated conflicts where people thought they were right, 
And he stood there as one who was gentle and humble in heart. He stood in front of Roman tyranny with his life on the line. And he would not misuse power. And he would not employ anger to make his point or to save his own skin. I was thinking the other day, what if Jesus disagreed with the Holy Spirit on something? Like, the Patriots are going to win. No, the Eagles are going to win. Something like that. How might that go down within the Trinity? How might that go down with two who are one, with two in whom the character of God is complete? How about this? What if one person who knew who they were as a rescued sinner and who knew the significance of this table and who knew Jesus had rescued them from the darkest corner of separation and leveled the highest wall behind which they lived and forgave their deepest sins and restored and renewed and imparted the beautiful word of grace and truth to liberate their imprisoned heart and Christ was being formed in them were to disagree with another who knew these same things and in whom Christ was being formed in them. How might that go down? How different would it be than people screaming insults at each other, tearing one another apart, crushing each other's souls and stomping on each other's vulnerability? See, the forgiven, the restored, the rescued should be on the leading edge of forgiving, restoring, rescuing. Being agents of gentleness and respect and grace and submission and hope and love in a divided and fractured and hurting world. And this table reminds us that when Jesus lived and died and rose again, a whole new world began. A whole new power was unleashed. And a new way of life and a new way of relationship and a new way of conflict became possible. So we practice open communion here at Oak Hills, which means if you follow Jesus, then you are welcome to join us at this table to celebrate this meal. And the way it will work is in a moment, ushers will come to the back of your section. One, two, three, four. They'll start in the back. They'll dismiss you out to your right. And you will come down the aisle. There will be servers down in front uh, where you can receive the bread and receive the cup. Continue across the front of your section, back up the aisle, where you can then return to your seat. As you probably know, we have a wonderful bread-making team of people. And our bread today has been made by them as we celebrate the table. And so when you come, someone will be holding a piece of bread. Just dig your claw in, yank a hunk out, and feast away. It's possible in this season of flu and whatever other things are floating in the air, you're more comfortable with simply taking a piece that's already cut. And there are two baskets on this table with pre-cut pieces. If you'd rather do it that way, feel free to wander over to the table and simply take one out, and that can be your bread. We have prayer teams. There will be a team back uh, there, and there will be another one back there, and they are here because you may have 
some things in your life you need prayer for, and those teams are here to pray for you. Our communion liturgy helps prepare us to come to the table remembering who Jesus is and what he has done, and there will be responses on the screens, and we encourage you to follow along. So would you bow your heads? I want to give you a time of silence just to prepare yourself to confess your sins perhaps, to express your gratitude and prepare to come to the table.